On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Moments That Rock. For those tuning in for the first time, Moments That Rock is basically industry insiders and artists sharing moments that rock their world, as well as highlighting their career and bringing up to date with what they're up to now. In the early episodes, we have some amazing back catalogs. Four programmes on on U2 from various people involved with the band over the years. There's the Cramps, there's Ray Davis, Sir Ray Davis, should I say. There's the Ramones and Steve Winwood. Um, and plenty more and go check it out and if you like this go subscribe tell your friends and listen to the other stuff on the pantheon group of podcasts which is all incidentally music only podcasts excellent place to be i'm delighted to be there today we have part two of the island book of records 1959 to 1968 volume one in fact edited by mr neil story an old colleague of mine from island records last week was great but we ran out of time this week we haven't He's back. Neil's story. I'm looking through the preview thing that you sent me, which is lots of beautiful images and covers and backstage passes and things. And yet on page 16, I see the unforgettable fire, Grace Jones, Steel Pulse, which doesn't fit into the um, chronological years you've got here. Yeah, that's all part and parcel of the of the preface. Something that the MUP wanted me to write, which was basically why I've written the book and to give a little bit of, make it personal, and a little bit of personal, if you like, history. So it ducks and dives from, you know, when I was living in New York, back to when I was growing up in the village that Nick Drake grew up in. We lived 100 metres away from each other in Tamworth in Arden. And then, you know, there's bits of, of I don't know, steel pulses there, illustratively, um, from the Ku Klux Klan sleeve. Grace Jones is in there. That's, again, illustratively. But that early section is really just sort of, if you like, setting the reader up in a way um, to sort of draw them into what the book is is all about because it's also followed by a historical bit on the Blackwell family and how they came to move from the Spanish countries in the Middle Ages uh, and land up essentially in in Jamaica uh, as a result of religious persecution. So, and then that develops into his mother and father marrying and then him being schooled at Harrow. He wasn't uh, expelled. His mother was told that, uh, quote unquote, Christopher may be happier elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, So it kind of ends... With that, and then him going back to Jamaica, it's it's detailed, but it's not kind of detailed down the yin yang, if you like. Um, and then it goes into the first of the the Jamaican albums. It's funny because um, while you were deep in writing all this up and researching, uh, he actually released his only book, didn't he, Mister Blackwell? After all these years, he did indeed. And um, we spoke 
in, when was it? November last year. And he called. And I really, really wasn't expecting his call at all. But he'd seen the a very kind of, not early, but an early-ish demo of what we were up to. I've never, there's never been any secrets about what we're up to. And he called completely out of the blue one evening. The line connection was pretty bad, so I, it was cold, and, but I had to take it outside. And so I'm standing there freezing my nuts <laughs> off. And he, by this time, is, is back in New York, presumably in a nice, warm, heated apartment. And we got to the end of the conversation. And uh, I said, look, you know, your book's all very well, but there are some things that I'd really like to talk to you about that really weren't covered in the book. Yeah, and then there was this long, long pause, and I thought, oh, bollocks, I've really stepped over it here. I've just, I've asked the the unforgivable question, do you mind if I, you know, because I said to him, look, I want to come and talk to you. Would you mind? Anyway, eventually he kind of came back, lying crackled again, and he said, yeah, okay, why not? So I got to spend some time with him in, in Jamaica in March. Um, we had to push the deadline back. With this volume because of that but he i got some incredible stories from him and they're not they're just kind of it's just adding color to some of the things that uh, that i already had and some of that will go into into volume two as well you can call yourself a rock historian after this i can safely say um but like myself i, I mean you were there before i was at island but for me it was I'd been buying all the records in the 60s and now they were going to pay me and I was going to get all the records for free. So I ended up working for my all-time favourite record label. So was this kind of a labour of love? Did you feel you had to do this? Because obviously you had a lot of knowledge um, and you had great relationships. I presume, have you reached out to the Steve Winwoods of the world? Steve was the first interview I did for this, believe it or not. Really? And... It was. Um, I can't because I can't look at it online and or on the computer and tell you the exact date of the interview. We, um, I rang up James, who looks after Steve, and said, "Look, this is what I'm doing. Is Steve prepared to, you know, do an interview?" And he he said, "I can, but ask anyway." So it was okay. Come down. We'll meet halfway. Steve selected a pub, we had lunch, and I basically taped our lunch. And we just talked about all manner of stuff, all manner of, you know, early traffic, obviously, right the way through till whenever it was. And he said to me at the end, he said, you've asked me questions that nobody's asked before. I was very flattered by that, actually. I have enough on tape from him that will last right the way through to the end of you know his time his time at island um but yeah i did i re reached out as you call it to all manner of people like that um penny masso was another one oddly she springs into mind because i got a an email from her today um she was steve's girlfriend in the early days of spencer davis group and traffic some fascinating insights from her as well if you delve back into the early editions of Moments That Rock, you'll find Mr. Winwood in there, along with the Cramps and the Ramones and Ray Davis and everything. Because it's funny, because I worked Ark of a Diver and I took Steve out on the road and we got on really well. 
it was incredible, really, because when you're kind of working with somebody like that, I mean, I'm sitting there, I think we had a curry or something, and um, Branson signed him when he was floating the label, didn't he? Because he'd had a number mm-hmm. one album in, in the States, and obviously yeah. he put a lot of kudos into getting funding for the airline. Mm-hmm. Um, and he would only do one interview, and it was with me, for it was MTV for Europe, right? And they had a camera over me. But I went down to do an interview for my own show, and you know what record companies are like, Neil. It was at the it was at the um, the Halcyon, where yeah, where yes. where a lot of people said nice hotel in um, Kensington, yeah, yeah. wasn't it? All Kensington the Vir- Park Road. All the Virgin Glitterati were there. You know, the kind of managing directors, the head director of promotion, sales, blah blah blah. All the fancy, you know, catering up there and everything. All got this signed a number one artist, you know. And if you remember, the album first album on, on Virgin was Roll with It. And yeah. I interviewed John Webster, and that album sleeve cost like 75 grand. John told me, because I had John on this a, a while back, you know, Moments That Rock. And then, <laughs> and then, like, he had this fancy shirt, obviously appealing to a female audience, a slinky kind of silk or satin white shirt or something. So I get met, <laughs> I get met in the Halcyon Hotel, and, um, <laughs> and a girl brings me up to do the interview. And... Um, it was funny because I had like I got a list of questions sent from Virgin Europe, uh, from Virgin Italy, Virgin France, Virgin Sweden, whatever you know. And I'm reading on the train going down, and it's like you got to remember this is a guy who's got his new album coming out right on a new label, very important priority as they call it. And the questions were, "What is your favorite um, traffic song?" Were the swinging 60s really as swinging as they were made out to be? And I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm thinking, you poor sod, you've got to answer these dumbass questions. So I had a three hour train journey, so I'm writing things down. So the <laughs> two things that I'll never forget this, the two things that I remember were I get taken up into the room. She opens the door, and there's all the catering table with all the fancy sandwiches and the cakes and the coffee and glass of wine and all this, and all the glacerati. And Steve's in the table in the corner, just waiting for me, you know. And I open the door, and he's got the white shirt on. So I look across and go, have you not got another fucking shirt? That's the... <laughs> so all this virgin mob, Neil, they're like this. They're looking at me like... <laughs> and of course, he laughs, you know. And then I sit down to interview him. My first question was, and dead serious face, Steve, as an artist, bearing in mind the questions I'd just read, as an artist, would you rather be played at 33 and a third or 45? <laughs> My next question was, how magic were your mushrooms? And he's just pissing himself laughing, and they're all like, you know. So anyway, if you remember around that time, he did a series of, which you probably went to, a series of concerts at the Royal Albert Hall. Yeah. And Clapton played on, I don't know if he's there every night. But what I'm correct in thinking, wasn't that the time that he'd married an American lady and she was managing him? Yeah, it was around about that time. He was newly married to Junior at that point, I believe. There was quite a period of time when we didn't see him. And then, yeah, around that kind of the Virgin era was a time when uh, I didn't see very much of him. But, you know, he was he was always, I don't know, for some reason or other, you either got on with him, with him or you didn't get on with him. There were no half measures with Winwood as far as I was concerned. And you, you did or you didn't. And I think you did, and I know I did. Maybe 
it was because we were relaxed around yes without doubt kind of stature there was no kind of i don't know treading on what are eggshells or anything like that there was no kind of i don't know blowing smoke up his ass or anything like that it was just you know you it was real people that's the only way i can really describe it um and so it was really nice that he did what he did for me um and you know we've seen each other since obviously albeit i'm not back in the uk very often and you know i do quite a lot of work for universal so i got invo- i was very involved in the the atmos remix of um of the low spark album which was last year i did all the tape research for that so we were speaking quite a lot on the phone and you know it's always total courtesy and you know it's just <laughs> i like him a lot you listen to moments that rock part of the pantheon media group of podcasts with neil story who was on last week's podcast this is part two about the uh, island book of records volume one great listeners of stories about steve winwin i must confess one of the favorite uh, one of my favorite artists to work with great guy brilliant musician and uh, those were the days as they say but i won't get too nostalgic Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store or I could make one of my new factor meals. (laughs) Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, oh yeah. 
And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. I might bust into tears. No, I'm not doing. Back after this. In our heyday, when we were, you know, PR, so to speak, I always found the biggest artists were the easiest to work with. Because they realise it's not all about them. It's about a team of people around them. And they're never late. They never arrive screwed up, you know, or anything like that. And they never complain or look bored in interviews and stuff. So my experience of, you know... I'm not sure that I would agree with that. I think... I think the, well, I suppose I was lucky then. No, no, I think the... Well, personally speaking, the easiest ones I worked with were the ones with whom there were no pretenses. You were just straightforward with with whoever it was, and it didn't really matter whether it was the Buggles or the Distractions or Basement 5 or whoever it was. It didn't really matter. It was all about just being straightforward. Mm. Because I have some horrendously hilarious stories which I've shared. was like I ran out of gas on the motorway with Peter Gabriel, you know, taken to an interview. I mean, who goes out on a promo tour without checking their fuel? Me. And the other thing was I went, <laughs> I had Sting do, I had the police around every breath you take. And I had him doing like uh, Cheggers Plays Pop, which was, of course, a national TV show on the BBC. And he, he was filming June at the time, and he only had a limited amount of time to come to get a shuttle from London up to Manchester. So I'm shooting down, you know, the dual carriageway to pick him up, you know, flying at the multi-storey car park up, slam the door, down the escalator, walk into the concourse, and there's the arrivals. And it, it comes up and it's... Arrived, I'm going, yeah, perfect timing, man, you know. So I walk up like this, dead proud of myself. He comes off, he's got his arm in a sling, you know. So we walk down, how are you doing? So blah, 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 we have a little gab, you know. Get into the elevator, he's standing by the buttons. He goes, where are you parked? I go, Whoop. I have no idea where I left my car. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm on level eight, shouting down, is it there? He says, not here, Tony. I said, well, you go up one and I'll go down one. Now, you got to remember, this was like... 
Every little thing she does is magic. Every breath you take, she'll say. They were the biggest band in the world. Could you imagine coming back from a meeting in London and seeing Sting with his arm in a sling walking around Manchester Airport car park looking for a car? <laughs> so I'm proud of the chaos that I kind of got away with, so to speak. But seriously, Neil, going back, I mean, obviously, like, this is fantastic, and I'm not read it all, but I'm, I certainly intend to and stuff, but... You know, there's a whole romantic side to it. You must have, like, it was a labour of love, really, wasn't it? I mean, you kind of delving into, like, your youth, in a way, and your career, and you're delivering something, um, but you were just learning more and more. I, I find that, and this is totally self-indulgent, in a way, because my premise with doing Moments That Rock is, if, if I enjoy the stories, why wouldn't other people? When I interviewed Tim Clark, who was the MD in 78 when I started... I'm getting like the history of Island Records, you know, from the 60s when he started. And I'm sitting there with my mouth open thinking, this is amazing. This is like a history lesson for me. You said something very interesting earlier. And you said Just it the was one all thing. about... Sorry? Just the one thing. <laughs> yeah, half a thing. What I, what, I was, what I was going on to say was that you you did allude to this. And I'll I'll kind of take the alluding a little bit further, which is that... I think you and I were very lucky because we got paid to actually indulge our hobby. Exactly, yeah. By that, I mean that, you know, we're both voracious collectors of music, certainly at that time, uh, voracious devourers of, 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 of music. And suddenly somebody comes along and says, actually, I'll pay you to do this. How fucking good does it get? I think the important uh, thing you mentioned was the graciousness. The fact that, you know, and, and I, you're probably the same, but I don't think it's until, you know, like we we live in a different time now. We we were at a halcyon <laughs> period of music. But when you come down the line, I, I'm always saying to people that I don't think I fully appreciated it until the roller coaster stopped. Because you're so full no, on. You, you're probably on five bucks an hour, the amount of hours you put in. <laughs> you 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 i mean you know you'd wake up and you would not know what the end of the day held for you you did not know what was going to happen that day so every day in essence became an enormous adventure mm -hmm. you were treading into the unknown the entire time because there were no rules you made it up you did this just as much as we did you made it up as you went along you said something about 30 years ago that I still use to this day, we came from a generation made it up when we were, as we went along. And it's yep. so true. It's so yep. true. It's not how to do industry. There's no two labels or like two managers, no two bands. So, you know, you have to learn your trade on the street because it's, I, I had, I did an interview for my book last year, several. And one of the first ones I did, this guy, there's a, piece in my book about meeting Led Zeppelin when I was 15, you know, managed to get backstage and, and hanging around there. And you get to realise what it's like to meet your heroes. And he said to me, what What do you feel the music industry taught you, Tony, that would have helped you meeting Led Zeppelin as a 15-year-old? I said, well, you know, not as much as you think. He said, really? I said, yeah. I said, you know, when I was six or seven, I realised I didn't want to hang out on the school playground with this jerk who was a bully. And when I'm in my teens discovering girls, you have to kind of stand in front of them and ask them out and fear rejection. Well, you think, I was 15. I had no idea I was going to work in an industry where communication skills were vital. And then all of a sudden, I learned my communication skills. That, that, 
quote of yours came back to literally haunt me because I thought, I learned my communication skills out on the street. You don't learn to drive a car until you pass your test. You don't learn interpersonal skills and stuff at school. In our day, they teach us Latin and stuff. I don't even know what interpersonal skills are. We were lucky we grew up in a world where there wasn't any of this corporate buzz speak stuff. And you 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 had to learn. You were, mm. you were given the job and you either got on with it and did it or you screwed up. It, it was literally black or white. It was There were no grey areas at all. But there were also people that were employed purely for the fact that they loved music. It's not like we had qualifications for the job. And if you think of it, in our time, Neil, you started a bit before me. But the thing is, like, from the 70s and stuff, we, you mentioned Chris, Chris Blackwell, we learned from the best. We're talking Chris Blackwell, Ahmed Ertiger, Jerry Moss, Herb Alpert. These were all music people. They weren't accountants and lawyers running labels. Oh, sure. And Chris Blackwell was putting records out that he would have had in his own collection. Right, but you know, I mean, the other the other great thing about CB was that he gave the artists he signed time to develop, and I think that's a really really exactly facet. So if you look at just as an example, you look at Robert Palmer. It took five albums for him mm-hmm. to achieve um, mainstream success either side of the Atlantic. He'd have been he'd have been dropped in this day and age because he didn't have the success straight out of the bag. Yeah, we all know what happened when a certain MD decided that they should be dropped after the release of the October album. He lost his job. So many instances of that that people were signed, and you know the first Cat Stevens album didn't exactly set the light set the world alight. Lady Darbonville was a hit ish but nothing much more than that it was only teaser and tillerman where it went stratospheric but you remember in those days because you were especially we working in press and things you were in the area of artist development that was always the favorite part of my job and the thing is you if i'm correct me if i'm wrong i think i heard this from rob but but um you two were into Ireland for like a quarter of a million in tour support and they couldn't afford to pay them. So you two were prepared to wait for the money. I don't think if you two had signed to an EMI or a CBS, as it was at the time, that they would be where they are today because they would have been dropped. If you remember when we were there, they dropped Ultravox and not you two, didn't they? It wasn't at the same time, but it was... No, but it was late 70s, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, you know, Ultravox, a lot of money was a lot of money. It was poured into them, and it just didn't come good. It's the same with Mott the Hoople. They just didn't come good. Mm. They weren't selling the records. The Jess Roden Band, another one, they just weren't selling the records to justify the expense that was being put into them. Just going back to, um, to your Island Book of Records, I presume it's a limited edition, eh? First printing. It's in the thousands. But it's, and how much um, does it cost? How much does it cost? In the UK, it's 85 quid, but it's being uh, 85 pounds. It's being heavily discounted in all sorts of places, from individual um, shops to Amazon to MUP themselves. So truthfully, it, it has a, a set price, but it isn't being sold at that set price. Uh, what it is in America, genuinely, I don't know. Um, but it's over $100, I know that much. You know what I would have loved to have done? I would have loved to have put 
a compilation together, you know, maybe two, maybe three CDs, maybe even four CDs to go at the back of this mm -hmm. book. I would have loved to have done that. It would have been unhappily an absolute nightmare Publishers. for the sharing of, of the tracks and yeah. all of that kind of stuff. And also, you know, finding some of that really obscure stuff that they don't necessarily have. It's a pity that hasn't happened because I think then it really could have been seen as, you know, even more definitive than, than perhaps it is being touted as at the moment. But you can't have everything, can you? Can you think of any one person you would have loved to have got to that you didn't get to interview for this? Uh, there was a lady called Elsa Peters. Um, Elsa and I were, were communicating and uh, she was Chris's, virtually his first assistant at 155 Oxford Street and then it didn't happen. Um, so it would have been nice to get a little memory or two from her. A few people who died, pre-deceased, if you like, mm. I would have loved to have spoken to. But you know, you can't turn the hands back to of hands of time back, can you? Marley would have been a gem, wouldn't he, Bob? Well, yes and no. But you know, Bob's story is so well known. Yeah, it's actually yeah. trying to find the the bits around those stories. So in terms of when we get to do Catch a Fire. Um, it won't be Bob necessarily, Peter or Bunny. It will actually be the original sleeve designers. You know, because I don't believe that the guys who actually, it's Bob, somebody or other, who put the, the Zippo sleeve together. I don't believe he's ever talked about that. But to me, those are the interesting bits. Um, but didn't you, you know, find back in the day that the, the, the artwork for the sleeves... Those were the things when I was like in my teens, you know, getting into music. Those are the records that made you pull them out of the racks at HMV and Virgin and get curious about what the music is like and go into the booth to listen to them. The artwork well, Chris, was so important. Chris said something it? very important. He said that, that um, if the sleeve is really good, then it might mean that the music inside is equally as good. So mm. therefore, to put a record in a sleeve that people, as you just said, they'll thumb through the record racks and go, oh, hold on, that's kind of interesting. Then then that has achieved that point. He also, I remember talking to him about this, and he said, actually, there were at least one act I sent back because the sleeve was better than the record. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Love it. Well, this is um, an amazing piece of work, Mr. Story. And um, what can I say but, uh, you know, congratulations and things. Are you really pleased with it yourself? When we got the, um, the finished copies, the first finished copies through, I, I do remember standing there and I did start stroking it. Yeah, good man. So good I, don't, man. I don't know whether that's actually a good thing, a bad thing, or whether it's me being a bit, I don't know. But am I proud of it? Yeah, I I have to tell you, I really, really am. And the one thing I'm looking forward to more than anything is actually handing CB his own copy. Yeah, yeah. You should um, get a signed copy off him for your own. <laughs> I bet he's never signed anything in his life. But you know the other thing that's in there that I think has really taken people a bit by surprise, and that is the um, – we were – I was contacted, uh, this was a few months ago, no, quite a few months ago, but do you remember a lady called Christine Atkins? And she was the last surviving person of, if you like, old Ireland, 
wow. when Island was sold, and then it, she then went on to work for Universal. Anyway, I got this email from her completely out of the blue. She's married now. She's by name Christine Goff and lives in Northern Ireland. And she said, I've got something which I think might be of use to you for the the books. So I said, oh, really? What's that? And she said, it's the very first director's book. It charts the first board meetings. I said, well, how on earth have you got something like this? And she said, I rescued it from the back of a skip. When they were moving offices, and there was always a skip at the back of Ireland at St. Peter's Square. So there would be, you know, phones that didn't work. There would be bundles and bundles of posters or singles that hadn't sold or albums that hadn't sold or whatever it was. Anyway, she was, well, I used to dive into that skip from time to time. And I've rescued photographs. Um, I've got some extraordinary stuff. Um, mainly it was photographs I was after. Anyway, and nobody had any use for them. Fine, they'll go in the back of a cupboard and maybe they'll be useful for me at some point. And boy, have they become so. Anyway, so she did exactly the same thing. And she saw this big brown envelope, thought, I wonder what's inside that. Opened it up. And it was the original director's book. So anyway, I've scanned two or three pages from it. And that's part of the, if you like, the developing story of, of Ireland. That stuff should be in a bloody museum. You have been listening to Moments That Rock with me, Tony Michael Edis. We'll be back next week. Today's show was part two of Neil's story, talking about volume one of the Island Book of Records, 1959 to 1968. An absolute masterpiece. So thank you, Neil, for that, and we will see you next week. Hope you like it. Go tell your friends, subscribe, and come back for more. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.